and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory, a senior science writer here at TN, and today I'm joined by my colleagues Laura Lansdowne and Kate Robinson. How are you both? Good, thank you. Yeah, yeah great, thank good. you. Good, good. On today's Roundup podcast, we're going to take a closer look at some fascinating research we've clamped our eyes on in the last two weeks. We're going to hear about the rise and fall of an ancient Mayan diplomat, uh, how alcohol-derived chemicals in our brain cause us to get a bit woozy when we've had a few pints. And first, we're going to go into some detail on an unusual study involving several adult baboons, some tasty grapes, and a challenging test of abstract logic. Now, a disjunctive syllogism sounds like some kind of a horrible injury you'd sustain from reading too many grammar textbooks. Uh, but in fact, it's a kind of logical argument that is going to be central to the, the study I'm discussing. Uh, now, the study is from researchers at Harvard, Yale and Carnegie Mellon University. And it's essentially been examining a, a test of developmental neuroscience that looks into how our minds and our logical reasoning develop as our brains age. Now, back to this disjunctive syllogism of try and not use that phrase too much during the rest of the podcast Tongue but in twist, short twist. <laughs> I know I know horrible um, but in short it's a piece of logic that relies on an or in the middle of the statement so uh, I imagine for example that we were allowed back in coffee shops as nice as that sounds imagine the coffee shop you're in only has two drinks a cappuccino or a latte if the coffee that I put in front of you, say it was I don't know, a cup or something, you're trying to wonder what it was. If I told you that it definitely wasn't a cappuccino, you'd be able to logically reason that it had to be a latte because, as I mentioned earlier, it's an either or situation. There's only two options and because we've ruled one out, it logically has to be the other. Now, that seems straightforward and it's something that the human brain um, seems to be able to grasp by an early age and the, the exact age that humans have shown the ability to um understand disjunctive syllogism has been something that's been of kind of a debate in this field. Now, the researchers at, at these two universities not only wanted to expand on previous research into the, the age at which uh, this, this term could be understood, but also how different species understand disjunctive syllogism. So uh, they wanted to look at non-human primates and how they were able to understand it. Uh, but before we move into primates and baboons and all that, let's focus on humans. So, as I said, the exact age that humans can work these out isn't 100% clear, but what we have tried to understand is ways that we can um, test for disjunctive syllogism understanding without using language, because language develops at a later age than you know, our, our, our spatial understanding. So the earliest, one of the earliest tests for, for this kind of understanding use something called the cup test, um, not the cup challenge thing where people are flipping cups in uh, TikTok, but um, <laughs> this is something where really young children were shown a reward, which actually in this case was nice stickers. Oh, Look really? Wow. Nice I stickers. did like a sticker when I was younger, though. Gold there stars is it still? So I can see where the, oh, the smelly from. ones that you can scratch, scratch off. Yeah. That's where the research budgets. That's where all the research budgets are going. You know, they've got shortages of all this pets and stuff. Find all these stickers, aren't they? So they took some of these nice stickers and they put them under a cup and an identical cup, which didn't have any stickers underneath, it was placed next to it. Now these cups were mixed around and then presented to some children volunteers in the study. Now. 
the kids were shown the empty cup. So the cup was lifted up and shown there was nothing underneath it. And then um, they were kind of left alone to, to explore the rest of the apparatus. So um, in the initial study, the researchers said that if the child then explored the, the other cup, that would be a sign that they understood that because the first cup was empty, it must therefore be under the other cup. And I know I feel quite worriedly. This seemed to kind of go unchallenged for over a decade from what I can see. But eventually someone pointed out that kids just like exploring things and fiddling about. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily show that they understood this logical concept. In fact, the kid might just think what's under this other cup and, and lift it up by curiosity. And there's no proof from that setup that there's a, some logical understanding. So uh, a subsequent study then updated this um, with a slightly better experimental design. So what this subsequent study did was to add a second pair of cups, again, with a reward under one and no reward under the other. Now, the kids in the study were presented with these four cups in two pairs, and the empty cup of one of the pairs was lifted up, and then it was up to the, the child to pick between the three remaining cups. Now, if they understood this concept of disjunctive syllogism, you know, they might need not need to know those words, but they understood that the stickers <laughs> had to be under the other pair. You'd mm -hmm. expect them to pick the empty cups pair more often than they'd go to one of the other two, because with the other two, it's a 50% chance because they, mm -hmm. they haven't seen under either of them. Previous studies suggested that kids as young as two would be able to do this. But in fact, the updated study design showed that it was only until they reached the ages of between three and five uh, that they were able to do this and kids under three couldn't. So that seemed like a, an advance to the field. But what the researchers have done here, as I mentioned earlier, was expand beyond human understanding and look at how other species can uh, attempt these kind of behavioural tasks. So the great thing about this cup test is that it doesn't require, as I mentioned earlier, any kind of linguistic understanding of the concept of or or necessity or anything. It just requires that whoever is or whatever is doing the test can pick up a cup. Mm -hmm. This makes it ideal for trying out with different species and it leads us to our baboons. So the mm -hmm. four baboons we're talking about in the study are called Olive Oil, Sabrina, Pepperella and Jefferson. OK, oh, that's not particularly names. important. Absolutely great names, though. Oh, it's fab. fab. <laughs> uh, Popeye. I don't know where they, they get them from. Not a clue. Really, I'd, so, like, I, I'd like to know, but, you know, maybe that's... I feel there's some terrible lab in-joke involved every time I read about... <laughs> like some weird gene name or like animal volunteers being given weird monikers. But anyway, these four baboons were taken from a troop of nine baboons and mm -hmm. uh, who are all trained to try and do this cup task. And these four were the only ones that could grasp the basics of picking up a cup to get a reward. Now, uh, the baboons sadly didn't get stickers. They got a quarter of a grape. But, you know, a if you're a baboon... A quarter of a grape? They Not didn't want a grape. Oh. whole grape. They didn't want it to be so big that the baboon would hide it and, and munch on that instead of continuing to do the task. They yeah. only gave them a, a small reward. And uh, once again, the baboons were put in front of a pair of two cups um, and then a, another pair of two cups. So four in total, as in the, the second version of that earlier experiment. And they were tasked after they'd learned the experiment um, with picking between the, the three cups once that empty cup had been exposed. On average, the baboons did pick the pair cup, which had a necessity of having uh, the reward under it 58% of the time. And with three options to pick from, you'd expect if it was by chance, they would have just picked 33% of the time. So this is a significant finding that shows 
that at least three of the baboons in the study, because uh, Sabrina, the fourth baboon, actually didn't do that well and brought the average down quite a bit, but certainly three of them were. <laughs> There's always one, Sabrina. isn't there, Sabrina? Always one. Sabrina, <laughs> terrible effort. But it shows that clearly non-human primates are able to, to grasp this kind of necessity. Um, that's what the, the authors concluded. And I think, you know, with these kind of study designs that are purely like behavioural tests, especially when they involve um, subjects that, you know, can't communicate back to you why they did something, there's, you know, there's going to be more subjectivity than we'd like. And the original study that this was all based off on had this, you know, obvious flaw in its, its logic kind of makes me want to see more research, certainly not just involving a, a small sample size um, of just a, a few animals. So uh, I think the researchers do want to kind of expand this to a wider population, mm. but it certainly suggests that, you know, these kind of logical uh, reasoning things, which we always tie to to language and to particularly humans being real smart and stuff, uh, in fact, is, is you know based on, on false logic itself. Um, I should also point out that the only other animal to have I was going to say, is there task... any other animals that have been tested? Yeah. Yes. So, so whilst baboons uh, are the only other primates to have done it, there was also an African grey parrot named Griffin who managed right. to complete the test as well. So well done, Griffin. Beat them to it. It almost sounds like what I do with my dog, actually, with cups, but I don't think he's he's grasping this concept so far. So. Kevin, Kevin the Corgi. How's, Kevin uh, the Corgi. Does, does, does Kevin pass the test? He did not pass the test. I think he was using his nose more than his, you know, the visual cues and, you know, this, this all concept. Kevin. Yeah, so I don't oh, think he's up there I'll with Griffin. I'll be sure to contact the researchers to ask them to update the file now that we have <laughs> reliable Corgi if... data. Surely a grape that's cut open would have some sort of smell. This is a good point as well. I don't know yeah. if they took any steps to... Yeah, how would they eliminate the chance of being able to smell? It out. It's, a, it's a good point. Maybe they should have used stickers, you know? But not scratch and sniff stickers. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, but yeah, I think I think in general it, it kind of highlights how difficult this kind of behavioral testing is and, and mm, probably yeah. shows why we still aren't sure about um you know what animals in the the wider kingdom can can do these kind of tests just because they're they're so hard to get subjective testing out of but um certainly i would encourage everyone to read this study and we'll put it in the show notes as usual um but uh yeah we have some plenty of other research to discuss in today's podcast so i don't know if laura you wanted to take us through some molecular findings about uh alcohol yeah, I feel like my study is quite heavy compared to your your study. There's no grapes involved, so. <laughs> well, I guess if you. But I guess there is alcohol, so. Yeah, if you ferment the grapes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it, I'm kind of talking about the behavioural um, effects of alcohol. So there was a study conducted by um, Li Zhang um, and his team. He works at the Laboratory of Integrative Neuroscience at the. Um, NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Um, and this study was looking at the behavioural effects of alcohol um, intoxication and what causes those effects um, and whether it's, you know, something that's produced in the brain as alcohol is metabolised elsewhere in the body, you know, what's happening. So the thing that really struck me, which I hadn't really thought about before, was that alcohol works really differently to other psychoactive substances. Um, and I know psychoactives are something that you're really interested in, Rory. So most psychoactives, say, for example, cannabis, they they bind to a specific receptor 
or C, you know, CB1, CB2, whereas alcohol doesn't have a specific receptor target that it attaches to. It's almost the, its metabolism causes its effects and those metabolites can be psychoactive. Um, the other thing that um, Zhang actually pointed out was that to produce those psychoactive effects, an individual usually has to have quite a lot of alcohol to get those behavioural effects, the, uh, the coordination, you know, struggles. I don't know. And <laughs> I don't know how true that will be after lockdown. I think I could uh, prove this theory wrong after half a pint. Uh, whereas, <laughs> you know, per body weight for, for drugs like cocaine, you're, you're only having a very small amount. So in terms of alcohol, the, the potential for the metabolites to build up is, you know, there's large a larger amount of t- metabolites that can build up in the body because of the volume mm. required to be consumed to get those effects. So they used um, in vitro and in vivo techniques, so animal models and brain slices um, to look at um, to what extent metabolism happens elsewhere in the body as well as the liver. Alcohol is metabolized by an enzyme called aldehyde dehydrogenase and we'll call it ALDH2. I might refer to it as enzyme later on because it's a bit of a tongue twister. Um, and this enzyme plays a key role in the metabolism of alcohol because it converts um, acetaldehyde into acetate. Um, and acetaldehyde um, is a toxic metabolite and it can cause cellular damage and DNA damage. So this enzyme is needed to, to get rid of that toxic metabolite. Mm-hmm. They looked at whether this enzyme, aldehyde, uh, uh, ALDH, the enzyme, the, the enzyme, enzyme um, was also working in the brain and whether it was its function in the brain had an effect on behavior. So they investigated the cell specific distribution of the enzyme and they found out that it was actually expressed in star shaped cells called astrocytes in the cerebellum. And that is a part of the brain which is to do with coordination um, and posture. So it kind of ties in with, you know, the behavioral effects of alcohol that individuals experience the researchers explored their behavioral effects of alcohol um, and to, to figure out whether it was happening in the brain or happening in the liver um, the researchers developed a mouse model that was deficient in the brain enzyme um, and they found that the animals showed reduced levels of the alcohol metabolite acetate um, in the cerebellum which is you know the region of the brain that controls you know function and posture um, after ethanol consumption Um, And they were almost resistant to the alcohol-induced motor impairment, whereas when they removed the enzyme from the liver and kept the enzyme in the brain, the the alcohol effects were still there for the alcohol-induced motor impairment, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Right. So you can still maintain the the liver function, which I'm pretty sure is the important one. Um, (laughs) <laughs> Whilst, but if you took uh, it away yeah. from the brain, the behavioural effects uh-huh. weren't there. So it shows that rather than the metabolites being created in the liver and travelling to the brain, crossing the blood-brain barrier and having an effect on behavioural function that way, it's it's that those metabolites are actually being created in the brain by the enzyme that's in the brain rather than the liver, um, which is just really interesting. And for a long time, they were saying that it was really hard to study where this enzyme was in the body, um, just because the it was, you know, present in such small quantities in the brain. It was really hard to find techniques able to detect it. So I just thought it was really interesting because I think when we think of alcohol and alcohol metabolism, we always think about the fact that, you know, liver's the main organ that metabolizes yeah. alcohol. So, yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting study that obviously something's, you know, 
this this process is happening in the brain and it does have a big impact in 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 mouse model in terms of the behavioral effects of the drug so one thing that interests me about that is say so if you if it's not in the brain Mm -hmm. you don't get those behavioral effects right Mm -hmm. yeah so if there was some way to eliminate that in the brain like surely that could have an impact on say like you know how there's like such a vast number of alcohol related hospitalizations Mm -hmm. surely if you weren't having those cognitive effects there would be less injuries Mm. so one of the things they have that I did ask about was perhaps the therapeutic potential of targeting mm-hmm. the enzyme yeah. or the process. And um, so he said that it is potentially, you know, they need to find out more about the cells that have this enzyme, the mm-hmm. um, astrocytes, the star-shaped cells. Um, and it could potentially, you know, be in future something that they look at. Um, they also did flag as well that um, uh, the enzyme deficiency can be related to other neuro um, disorders and pathologies, so Alzheimer's disease in specific populations and things like that. Mm. So it might be worth looking at, you know, this enzyme in different settings as well as alcohol to see if there's links with other disorders and conditions. So um, it was a really, I just found it a very interesting study and yeah, it just piqued my interest really. Mm Fascinating stuff. Well, Kate, I think you have a, a final study for us to discuss, and, and this is a, a, a very different turn from what we've discussed so far. This is going back into history. Mm-hmm. I was going to say this is in severe contrast to the type <laughs> of study that Laura has just talked about. Or waffled on about at least time. I'm basically just going to tell you a story. I wouldn't really say it's you know, much of a study, really. But I think after mine, they probably need a story, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> I think I confused Easy listening. Again, so. <laughs> so just to give you a bit of background, the Maya was a civilization that there is obviously a lot of intrigue around there involved with the calendar. Everyone thought the world was going to end in 2012, that kind of thing. But the it's a lot of uh, different cities and uh, a lot of like different civilizations but one so the reason that it's such a big intrigue it's such a curiosity of people um is that the the cities were abandoned in around the year like 900 um but before that the spanish conquest arrived and that led to the burning of books which means that we don't really have this literature to look at um Mm -hmm. so there isn't you know there's not a lot of avenues for research um so when the cities were abandoned, um, it's a, in a highly forested area. And when that happened, all these cities became like overgrown. But using laser mapping has allowed for the rediscovery of these places, which then leads to excavation. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what this study starts from. So a team from the University of California at Riverside um, these archaeologists were excavating in El Palmar in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And during the, these excavations, they found a stairway which was adorned in hieroglyphics. And then this led up to a ceremonial platform. Um, and below the platform, they found the undisturbed remains of what was thought to be a man called Alpac Wal. Woo! Pronunciation <laughs> smashed it. <laughs> Probably. I don't know, but that sounds great. Sounds good. Say it with confidence. It's fine. Go with it. (laughs) So um, the hieroglyphics explained that 
this man was a standard bearer, um, which is a diplomat who would walk carrying a banner um, on these like diplomatic missions. And the story on, on in those glyphs was um, about the alliance to be forged between these two kings. Mm-hmm. Um, so from from that story, and then from studying his bones, which was uh, discovered that he had jade and pyrite inlays in his teeth. Right. I th- this is like <laughs> the historic version of a tooth gem, but like I think so, extreme. Yeah. Like that's what I got from when you yeah, obviously when you sent the, just yeah, that. It's a painful. strong look. It's a strong <laughs> look. Um, so in those times, apparently that was like a sign of elitism. Okay. Um, and he also had, he had a his, the back of his skull was flat, so during infancy had had been in contact with a flat surface for a prolonged period of time, and that was also seen to be like. Um, an attractive trait in, so that was an intentional in civilization okay. yeah so from that kind of information that would suggest that he's he was a man of high standing um having all of these like you know nifty teeth insertions and stuff um <laughs> but when they like were studying his bones um he also had porous areas on the side of his skull known as paratic hypostosis and that could have been the result of childhood illness or nutritional deficiencies. Um, So even though he was obviously a man of high standing, he still experienced nutritional deficiency in childhood, possibly. Um, But also to further in that, um, his arm bones showed healed periostitis. What's that? Periostitis, yeah. I have no idea what it is, but... (laughs) It could have been caused by infections, scurvy, rickets. Um, he also had, I think it was a chip in his, like, what do you call the the calf bone? Not the calf bone, but his lower leg. Mm-hmm. Um, leg bone one. Leg bone, like bone one. Shin bone? Shin. Shin? Shin. Okay. Yeah. Your weekly reminder that the staff of Technology Networks are not medically qualified. Please do not <laughs> seek medical advice on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, shin bone. There we go. <laughs> the knee bones connected to them. So obviously he had these dental implants, but one of them had fallen out and it hadn't been replaced before his death. And um, that would have been, in the study's words, like a public declaration of his like a lower significance. Um, because when he smiled, he would have had that big gap in his teeth prominent um, gap okay and from the the implants being put in um it was suggested that he would have had to eat like soft foods since being a teenager because of the the drilling and well those tooth gems seem quite extreme don't they as well <laughs> i mean i definitely yeah. don't like the dentist but i couldn't imagine going and getting my teeth drilled in the air like 700 no thank you <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just thought that that study was pretty interesting because it's it's like some a civilization that we don't know entirely, um, it, we don't know a lot about, mm. um, but it uses things like carbon dating um, and laser mapping to find these areas mm-hmm. that can discover stories like this that obviously were previously unknown. Mm. What I find interesting as well is it's it's the kind of the collaboration between you know 
looking at the bones, looking at that person, and also, you know, the the hieroglyphics were they called? The hi- yeah. yeah, the hieroglyphs on the walls and things like that. And it makes me think nowadays with communication and you know, information storage being digital, mm-hmm. and on these different devices, and it's advancing so quickly whether yeah. there would be that traceability in future for people mm. to be looking at these things yeah. because you know you hand a cassette player to someone you know oh, there's children nowadays <laughs> yeah and they just don't know how to even begin to decipher what it is um because of you know technical advances in this area but yeah it's it I, I guess because you obviously you said about he was a pole bearer and you know you were deciphering those things from the information that was at that site it just yeah. It just made me think, yeah, in terms of technology and information. I'm going to get to work doing some hieroglyphs on my wall. Yeah, <laughs> just in tell case. Tell generations how important that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no computers. Get that notepad back out, really. Yeah. Steps after this podcast, paint the walls, do my teeth, get my head flattened. <laughs> Success. There you go. Is, is that a book title? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, that was that's a really interesting study uh, though like just to yeah just all of that information and that whole story just from piecing together information yeah that's what i thought yeah mm-hmm. that's crazy well yeah. if you wanted any further evidence that technology networks covers every nook and cranny of science i think you've gotten it today but yeah we've talked about uh every potential avenue of science you could imagine um, and i'm really glad lauren kate have been able to join me on this episode so um, please do like share and subscribe our podcast and if you're listening uh, please comment don't keep your opinions to yourself but until next time bye for now <laughs>